Our Father, we are grateful to you for the rain which is gently falling. We're thankful that you provide the blessing to us each and every day of our lives, whether it be the external blessings of rain and sunshine, or more importantly, the internal blessing of the presence of your Holy Spirit, and that confident uh, sense that we have of our uh, presence and our eternal hope in you. Father, we ask you to bless this day to each of us. We ask that you'll be very, very present with us here in this class. And Father, even though the subject of today is many, many years ahead of the day in which Christ entered Jerusalem on that triumphant Sunday, we are so thankful that the message is the same, that God is our Redeemer by whatever method or means he may choose at the moment. And Father, we're thankful for Christ who came to be our Savior. And for the man Noah who became a type of Christ in the way that he lived, in the way that he served. Bless our time now in Jesus' name. Amen. It's kind of interesting that we are now embarking on the seventh chapter of Genesis. We have been through six chapters and we have seen progress in the wrong direction. From the first chapter, second chapter, where we see that 100% of the world's population was committed to God, Adam and Eve, before the fall. Until we get to the place where we are today, where there is only one who is called righteous on planet Earth out of untold millions. The intervening period from Adam until Noah was a period of, of, in, un, of increasing unrighteousness, it seems. But we always know, because this is a theme of Scripture, that God always preserves a remnant. And as you look through the Old Testament, you find that even though Israel so often went astray, there always was that believing remnant. Even in the days of Elijah, it was spelled out very clearly when Elijah said he was the only one, and God said, no, I have yet 7,000 others who have not yet bowed the knee to Baal. I believe that's a concept, a teaching, a principle of Scripture, that there always is a believing remnant. The remnant was very, very small at the time we're studying, eight persons. We've covered certainly a millennium and a half, maybe two millennia, some argue that we've covered many, many more millennia than that. There are some who studying this feel like Adam and Eve were not 6,000 or 8,000 years ago, but were more like 10 or 15,000 years ago, and, and they read the story of Genesis a little different. I'm not talking about liberals. I'm talking about evangelicals who just interpret it a little bit differently. Today we're going to begin the seventh chapter, and I'd like for us to... Uh, Read the first five verses of the seventh chapter to begin with. Then the Lord said to Noah, Enter the ark, you and all your household, for you alone I have seen to be righteous before me in this time. You shall take with you of every clean animal by sevens, a male and his female, and of the animals that are not clean, two, a male and his female. Also the birds of the sky by sevens, male and female, 
to keep offspring alive on the face of all the earth. For after seven more days, I will send rain on the earth, 40 days and 40 nights. And I will blot out from the face of the land every living thing that I have made. And Noah did according to all that the Lord had commanded him. The seventh chapter of the book of Genesis records the greatest cataclysm in human history. Millions of people, if you've, if you've studied the history of uh, the human race, you know that millions of people have died in natural disasters, famines, plagues, and wars. For example, back in the 16th century, 800,000 Chinese were killed in a massive earthquake in the Yellow River Valley in 1931, that same river, the Yellow River flooded, and killed 3,700,000 people in the lower Yellow River Valley of China. One-third of Europe, it's estimated, was wiped out in the Great Bubonic Plague, which began in 1347 and lasted until 1353, beginning in the ports of Italy and, and moving north until it reached Scandinavia and the British Isles. A third of Europe one out of every three people estimated died in the great bubonic plague of that particular time period. We have been living in a time when millions have died in the African famines of the last 20, 25 years. During World War II, it's estimated that at least 50 million people died as a direct result of the war, most of them being civilians. And yet in all of this, never was the earth close to the extinction of the human population. There are always hundreds of millions, even billions more, well, not always, but at least in the 20th century, there have been that many more. But in this chapter, we're reading about the point in which the earth almost reached total extinction. But for eight people, the entire population of the earth is to be obliterated. This is, without a doubt, the most massive loss of human life throughout the history of this planet. Now Noah, as we, as we come to the seventh chapter, we, we are aware of the fact that Noah has been spending all these years, decades, building the ark. It is now complete. We don't know exactly how many uh, months or days or weeks or years it was complete before the events described here begin. He had warned his family, his friends, those who had helped him build the ark. He had warned them of the impending flood, of the great disaster to come. But to the man, or the woman, they had totally rejected his warning. As we've noted before, that's incredible. A preacher with that kind of a record wouldn't hold very many pulpits very long in America. Finally, the bittersweet day arrived. The bittersweet day. Bitter in that calamity was about to fall. The calamity about which Noah had preached for all these years. It was going to strike those people that he had preached to and for whom certainly he had prayed that they would hear, that they would submit to God. But it was sweet also in the fact that God was about to be, uh, that is, Noah was about to be vindicated by God. All the laughter and all the jokes and all the subtle remarks about his sanity 
would, would now be set aside as all that he had said would prove to be true. So it was sweet in that sense. When that day arrived, God told Noah to enter the ark. Now, I don't think God thundered it out from heaven. Noah, enter the ark. And, you know, the sound reverberating across planet Earth. No. I, I think he spoke to Noah in that still, small voice that later would be clearly identified by Elijah as he was on the mountain. I think God, quietly in the spirit of Noah, said, it's time, Noah, to enter the ark. You see, God wasn't worried. God wasn't frightened. God, things, God had things, of course, well in hand. I think the voice was gentle. I think the voice was compassionate. And I wouldn't be surprised if in the voice there was kind of a sigh as, about, as God was about to destroy the human race. God does not take joy in the death of people, yet he was going to bring about this massive destruction. The last phrase of the, ver of the first verse that we read of the seventh chapter is at the same time sublimely wonderful and yet overwhelmingly frightened. You, Noah, alone have I found to be righteous in this time, literally in this generation. You alone. I don't know if the, if, if the magnitude of that really struck Noah to know that he was the only one who was righteous in the eyes of the Almighty God. You know, obviously that could sink in and he could become real proud. <laughs> I'm the one holy guy here. The rest of you guys are a bunch of jerks. You know, but that was not Noah's attitude. I found the words of Matthew Henry here to be very, very interesting and uh, instructive. Concerning this verse, that old commentator made these remarks. A gracious invitation of Noah and his family into a place of safety. The call itself is very kind, like that of a tender father to his children to come indoors when he sees night or a storm coming. God does not bid him to go into the ark in terms of demanding him to enter the ark, but to come into it, implying that God would go with him and would lead him into it, accompany, accompany him in it, and in due time bring him safely out of it. It was this that made Noah's ark, which was a prison, to be to him not only a refuge, but a palace. This call to Noah was a type of the call which the gospel gives to poor sinners. Christ is an ark prepared already, in whom alone we can be safe when death and judgment come. The reason for this invitation is a very honorable testimony to Noah's integrity. Observe, first of all, Matthew Henry says, those are righteous indeed that are righteous before God who searches the heart and cannot be deceived by men's character. Secondly, God takes notice of 
and is pleased with those who are righteous before him. The Lord knows those that are his. Thirdly, God, that is a witness to, will shortly be a witness for his people's integrity. Fourthly, God is, in a special manner, pleased with those who are good in bad times and places. And then finally, those that keep themselves pure in times of common iniquity, God will keep safe in times of common calamity. Kind of, I, I think, really insightful as to the spiritual thrust of all that's happening here in this great event. Uh, the, the whole story of Noah and the ark is often trivialized. We some, see some kind of funny-looking little boat and all these animals gleefully parading onto it, and their giraffe's head sticking out the top, you know, and all kinds of funny little things. It's not a funny story. It's tragic. I mean, we're talking about judgment here, massive judgment. Judgment that not only is going to wipe out all humanity, but all other air-breathing, land-surface-living creatures. Total wipeout. As the day of judgment approached, God further refined his instructions to Noah concerning the animals and the birds. Now remember, as you read in the sixth chapter, he said, you know, bring, bring a pair of all the animals. And... In the sixth chapter, at least, we don't have record uh, of him explaining it more fully, indicating that of certain animals, there was to be more than just a single pair, but of the clean animals, there was to be seven, three pairs and a spare, if you will, were to be brought into the ark. Now, the Hebrew word here for clean is the word which means pure physically and ceremonially. And this is the first record in Scripture of this particular distinction being made amongst the animals. At that time, we don't know, of course, what that distinction was. Most commentators think it probably was simply the distinction between domesticated animals and wild animals, and that may be so. We don't know that a, a ceremonial purity of animals had yet been developed, although that's possible. We know that later on, specifically what were clean and specifically what were unclean were spelled out in, in, in the book of Leviticus, particularly in the 11th chapter. We won't take time to look at it there, but the types of animals which were, were clean are, are given for us there, and the types which were unclean are given there. And of course, we know that that wasn't necessarily an eternal situation because later, as Peter was on the housetop and the and the sheet was let down with all these animals, and he was told to kill and eat. He said, no, Lord, I cannot, because, you know, a lot of these animals are unclean. And he says, huh, that which I have designated as clean, don't you call unclean. Of course, the point of that was that the Gentiles were those who were to receive the gospel, and Peter was not to refrain from ministering to the Gentiles as much as to the Jews. But the point seems to be that the cleanliness or the uncleanliness of an animal is not latent in the animal, but in what God ordained for that time and for that people. Now, the reason for three pairs seems to be in the fact that God intended for these animals to reproduce more rapidly. Uh, a single pair, of course, is going to reproduce at whatever that rate, uh, the rate is for that particular animal. But if you have three pairs, of course, you triple uh, the reproduction. 
The spare was apparently, it seems from what we read about later, to be used then for the sacrifice. In verse 4 of this chapter, it says, For after seven more days I will send rain on the earth, forty days and forty nights, and I will blot out from the face of the land every living thing that I have made. God here is revealing to Noah that at least a portion of the great flood is going to come via rainfall. Precipitation from the heavens is going to produce at least a portion of the flood. Now, in the Old Testament, if you study through the whole Testament, you're going to discover that rain is sometimes used as a symbol for God's blessing or, or God's judgment, God's chastisement on a people, his people. So rain sometimes seems to be connected with spiritual condition. And we're not totally unfamiliar with that because we have prayed for rain in California, haven't we? By praying for rain, we are acknowledging that it is God who is in control. And many have said, hey, the California probably is going through this drought because California needs God's hand of chastisement on it. So even today, we seem to see or feel that there's a relationship there between rain and mankind's spiritual condition. We, we discover in the Old Testament there are passages which indicate that when God's people are obedient, he sends the rain as it ought to come, the early rain and the latter rain, to bring the harvest and the, the, the growth and the harvest. And then when God's people are disobedient, he withholds the rain. Let's look at a passage which illustrates this in Deuteronomy chapter 11. Deuteronomy chapter 11, beginning at verse 13. And it shall come about, if you listen obediently to my commands, which I am commanding you today, to love the Lord your God and serve him with all your heart and all your soul, that he will give the rain for your land in its season, the early rain and the late rain, that you may gather in your grain and your new wine and your oil. And he will give grass in your fields for your cattle, and you shall eat and be satisfied. Beware lest your hearts be deceived and you turn away and serve other gods and worship them, or the anger of the Lord will be kindled against you. And he will shut up the heavens so that there will be no rain, and the ground will not yield its fruit, and you will perish quickly from the good land which the Lord is giving you. This was clearly God's message to his people. Israel, as they would settle and did settle in the land. If they walked with him, he would meet their every need. And, and we, of course, have this reaffirmed for us in the New Testament. God will supply our needs according to the riches of, uh, of God in Christ Jesus. But as you look at the New Testament scripture, you will discover that it is conditional, as is the Old Testament scripture. Just because we are believers in Jesus Christ doesn't mean automatically we're going to receive all the blessings regardless of how we live our lives. God does tell us that we are to be obedient in order to receive his fullest blessing. If we are disobedient, well, the rod is not used in vain by God. 
And sometimes, all the time, that rod is not pleasant. And it may come in many different forms. As was the verse, the passage of Scripture of uh, the bicentennial centennial celebration, if you remember, back in 1976, the was introduced by... Um, was Campus Crusade or one of those organizations introduced the verse and it became sort of the nationwide passage of Scripture. If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray, then I will hear from heaven and will heal their land. Meaning that God will provide his blessing upon his people if they really turn to him. And I think that that Old Testament passage is as true today as it was then. And it applies as much to believers today as it did then. We have a tendency to believe, I think, and I've, I've heard this reaffirmed recently by some uh, preachers, that uh, sometimes as Christians, today we seem to feel, because the Holy Spirit dwells within us, that we are exempted somehow uh, from you know, the chastisement of God, and He accepts us, and we can go ahead and sin with impunity. And Paul says, no way. Uh, we shall not sin so that grace will abound more. We're to be obedient, just as Jehovah said to the Israelites 4,000 years ago. In the case of the antediluvian people, the judgment, of course, came not in rain being withheld, but in too much rain. Although... God would, as we will note later, promise never again to destroy the earth with a great flood. He did not promise that floods themselves would never occur on planet earth, and we well know that. Small-scale floods have repeatedly devastated many regions of the earth. I gave you an example of the Huan He, or Yellow River Basin, and what's interesting is to note that that's one of the most devastated regions of the world through history. The Yellow River is a very strange river. It flows a very long distance to go a short ways. And it goes through some very, very uh, uh, unusual topography. And in the process, it picks up so much sediment. It is the most silt-laden river in the world for its length. Uh, that it constantly is filling its, its riverbed and building its levees and breaking its levees. And, and, and moving its mouth, the mouth of the Yellow River has moved as much as 500 miles along the coast. And, and that river, which isn't a terribly high volume river, it, it runs at 50, 60,000 uh, cubic feet per second, which is not massive, a lot bigger than the Sacramento is, as it flows out here. But uh, it has produced millions of deaths through the history of that, of China, uh, because that river has flooded so, so frequently. And of course, the Yangtze which is a far bigger river, has created its problems too. The, the Brahmaputra uh, Ganges come together in what is today Bangladesh, and who knows how many millions have died in that river valley. Floods have happened since the Great Flood, and millions of lives have been taken. God did not say that that would not happen. He just simply said, I will not wipe out the whole planet again. See, that's one of the other things that makes the idea of thinking of this as just a limited flood kind of ridiculous. Because some of the things God says make no sense if, if you uh, read it within that context. The scripture teaches that part of God's general expression of his love is that he sends rain on the just and the unjust alike. It's raining today. 
And we're thankful for the rain, the, the April showers. Maybe everybody isn't, but most of us should be. And the unjust are out there reveling in it as much as are the just. But nevertheless, clear, clearly use, God uses a superabundance of rain or a dearth of it from time to time to chastise his people or to chastise a nation. In this case, though, we have an account of unprecedented rain. Now, some argue that it never rained before this time, and no, we can't say yes or no about that. We know back in the early part of Genesis, it, it said it hasn't rained. Whether between then and this time it rained, uh, probably it did not, for reasons that we'll talk about, maybe not today, but in two weeks. Uh, but certainly never rained like this before, if it ever rained before. God sent this unprecedented rain to produce a flood which would, in the, in the wording of the Scripture, blot out every land creature in whom was the breath of life. The Hebrew word translated blot out is also frequently translated as wipe out. <laughs> We're very familiar with that term today. We use it in a lot of ways. Some rather undangerous ways, like you wipe out when you're shooting the, the tube or whatever they call that in, in surfboarding. <laughs> that can be dangerous, I guess. But, but of course, this wipeout here is extremely <laughs> serious, to say the least. It's kind of interesting that uh, if we turn to Exodus chapter 17, verse 14, we see the use of that same word, only it's not talking about wiping out the planet. 17.14, then the Lord said to Moses, write in this in a book as a memorial, recite it to Joshua, that I will utterly blot out, wipe out the memory of Amalek from under heaven. It means to clean the record, to expunge the record, to remove totally these people from the record of the planet. David uses the same term in that well-known 51st Psalm. Let's read a couple of verses where he uses it. This is exactly the same term that's used in Genesis. Psalm 51.1 Be gracious to me, O God, according to thy loving kindness, according to the greatness of thy compassion, blot out, wipe out, clear from the record, my transgressions. Verse 9, hide thy face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. When you think about it in that light, you understand what he's doing here. He's erasing from the planet the entire civilization that had developed up until that time. Noah and his family would be the sole survivors and there probably would not even be physical evidence left on the surface of planet Earth of that prior civilization. What evidence was left, if it were not totally destroyed, would be probably buried under hundreds of feet of mud, which would later solidify into rock. 
Our sins are to be removed from us as far as the east is from the west, we're told elsewhere in the Psalms. And, and so we understand what, what David is talking about here when, we're t when he's talking about wiping out or blotting out the record. So by implication, we understand that God is intending to wipe out the entire record of that human race that existed prior to the flood. And he would preserve that small, small remnant on the ark. We should notice, I think, the similarity between chapter 7, verse 5, and chapter 6, verse 22. Let me read 622 first. Thus Noah, this is of Genesis, thus Noah did according to all that God had commanded him, so he did, 7.5, and Noah did according to all that the Lord had commanded him. That is such a neat statement. Wouldn't it be so wonderful for God to be able to say that about us? According to all that I commanded him or all that I commanded her, so he did, so she did. I think most of us today would probably not be willing to jump up instantly and say, I, I, like Noah, have done all that God has commanded me to do. Most of us would have to admit that we have been on the so-called rabbit trail from time to time. We have deviated from the course that God has set before us. In fact, we may even today be deviated in some way, not really walking in the way that he has set before us. We live in a day when the temptation to do that is very, very strong. But there's almost nowhere you can turn today in which there isn't something saying, come, come, come this way. You know, the serpent hissing from the tree, as some would try to portray the garden experience. But again, as I said last week, I think Noah's temptation was far worse than ours. Because at least you and I have each other. We have the pastoral staff, we have you know, some good preachers on television and radio, and uh, we have way, places to go, whereas Noah, Noah had nowhere to go. Now, Mort last week pointed out that uh, since Methuselah may not have died until the year of the flood, Noah probably had Methuselah to go to to find encouragement, and, and that, that's a possibility. Certainly, uh, there's no indication that, that Methuselah was not a righteous person, but of course, at least at the time uh, when the flood comes, the scripture says Noah alone was righteous in his generation. Now, if we mean by generation, generation, and, and that's excluding, therefore, Methuselah's generation, then obviously that doesn't uh, create, create a, a problem of any kind. Noah was a man who didn't just believe, but he obeyed. I think the scripture clearly teaches, and I think this is what Paul is trying to emphasize when he wrote the book of James, or the Lord through Paul in writing the book of James, is that there really is no such thing as belief without obedience. If there is no obedience, we don't really, truly believe. And I think today we have, uh, I, I think if you look at the writers of oh, 50, 30, 40, 50 years ago, they commonly used a term called easy believism. I remember that uh, Vernon McGee, that was a term that he had uh, used from time to time. Easy believism. The idea that, yeah, you can believe in God without really doing what he has told you to do. 
And yes, you'll make it, but by the skin of your teeth, as Scripture indicates in one place, or some interpret that's what it means in that particular place. But my question, the question which has come to me has been, if a person doesn't believe enough to obey, does he really believe? Does he have life-saving belief? Now, somewhat that's behind this, this battle which is going on in the uh, evangelical world today that some of you may be aware of and some of you may not. The so-called, um, oh, what do they call it? Lordship salvation argument. Can you be saved and yet not take Christ as your Lord? Can you be saved from hell but not submit to Lord Jesus as Lord? Well, Ryrie and some of those say, yeah, you can. You know, as long as you've at any time in your life said, Jesus be my Lord, no matter what you do after that, you're in like Flynn. And others, like John MacArthur and uh, others argue, hey, there's no way that can be. <laughs> Jesus said, and we'll read a, that in a, in a moment, Jesus said, in effect, that you are my disciples if you do what I say. If you love me, you will do what I say. So, you know, I think that's what we have here. Noah is a man who didn't just believe God, but he put his belief to work, and he did what God said. And so we have this tremendous uh, account written of him. Let's, let's look at a couple of passages written by the Apostle John. First in his Gospel, the 15th chapter, which is so well known to us, the vine and the branch parable that Jesus gave. This, uh, this parable to me teaches many things, but particularly it teaches us something about this whole belief action thing, and also there's a key verse on prayer in here. Verse 1, I am the true vine, and my father is the dr uh, vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away, and every branch that bears fruit, he prunes it, that it may bear more fruit. You are already clean because of the word which I have spoken to you. Abide in me, and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit it's of itself, unless it abides in the vine, so neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him, he bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away as a branch and dries up. And they gather them and cast them into the fire and they are burned. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it shall be done to you. Stop here just a minute. To me, that is one of the most essential verses to study when we study prayer. A lot of passages are read, and, and we take a single verse, and we take that, whatever you ask in Jesus' name, it shall be done for you. So we go run around, Jesus' name this, Jesus' name that, and automatically it's got to happen because we asked in Jesus' name. Well, you know, that's like using a rabbit's foot or a, a horseshoe or, or something else, you know. Uh, Jesus' name is not a magic word. It's not abracadabra. When you look at a verse like this, then sometimes we understand why our prayers seem to be bouncing back off the ceiling. 
Because we have to abide in Him, be plugged into Him. Just, I mean, have you ever seen a grape a branch bearing fruit which is unattached to the stump? Be a rather strange branch if that were true. I'd be a little worried about the grapes. But he says, if you abide in me and my words abide in you, this book is in here. And we're living by this book, not by the philosophy of the world or doing what comes naturally. Ask whatever you wish and it shall be done for you. Why? Because if we're plugged in and his words are in here, we're going to ask what he wants to do anyway. That may not be, as some would promise you on television, a car, a garage full of seven Cadillacs, one for each day of the week. You know, your Monday Cadillac, your Tuesday Cadillac, your Wednesday Cadillac. Because God promised you to be rich in this world's goods. You know, a coastal uh, uh, a cottage, a mountain chalet, and you know, a, a palace in your town. Uh, no. Why should we have all that when Jesus didn't have a place to lay his head, it says. By this my Father is my Father glorified that you bear much fruit, so prove to be my disciples. <laughs> how, do we become his, how do we prove that it were his disciples? By bearing fruit. No bear fruit, no disciple. No disciple, what? No, you're, you're not saved. Just as the Father has loved me, I have also loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love. Just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love, these things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you, and that your joy may be full. This is my commandment, that you love one another, just as I have loved you. Greater love has no man than this, that one lay down his life for his friends. You are my friends, if you do what I command you. Jesus would lay down his life for his friends. We are his friends if we do what he commands us. You study that logically, and we understand that if we don't do what he commands, we're not his friend, and therefore he did not die for us, and therefore we are not in the kingdom. I think Noah clearly illustrates, as John indicates here, that his obedience proved his faith. John later in his gospel reinforces this in 1 John, not his gospel, in his letter, his epistle, 1 John chapter three, 2, verse 3. 1 John 2, 3. By this we know that we have come to know him. How do we know if we know God, Jesus, as our Lord? If we keep his commandments. The one who says, I've come to know him and does not keep his commandments is a liar. And the truth is not in him. To me, that just kind of deep sixes the whole argument relative to lordship salvation right on the spot. But whoever keeps his word, in him the love of God has truly been perfected. By this we know that we are in him. And the one who says he abides in him ought himself to walk in the same manner as he walked. Now, we're not going to walk perfectly, and we're not going to be obedient at every moment, but in our heart is that desire to do what he wants us to do. And even though we're on this rabbit trail and then on that rabbit trail, and even though we may fail utterly miserably, I mean, Peter blew it royally, right? 
denying Christ three times. And yet, he was, Jesus knew at the time that Peter was denying him there in the courtyard that Peter would yet one day be a powerful preacher for Jesus Christ. That in but a few weeks, he would stand in the street and face these very people and boldly proclaim who Jesus was. So because we fail here and fail there and fail maybe frequently, doesn't mean we're not striving to be obedient. But if our attitude is, it doesn't make a bit of difference. But there are people who will not hear your word if you're trying to teach them what the Bible says about a certain thing, but they have swallowed some kind of line, and they think it's of God, even though the Scripture clearly indicates that it is not. And no matter what you say or what you show out of, out of Scripture, they'll say, oh, that's just your idea. To me, that's the attitude of disobedience. Because if a person is truly an obedient person, even though we may be caught off guard and off down a wrong trail sometime, when the word comes, we hear. I mean, look at David. <laughs> David was a long way from the mark with Bathsheba and Uriah. I mean, can you think really of much worse? And yet when the word came, it hit him like a knife. And, and when the prophet wagged his finger under his nose, thou art the man. He then turns and writes the 51st Psalm, Oh, God created me a clean heart. See, that's what I'm talking about. And that's what Scripture, I think, is talking about. The person who rejects that, I believe, is the person who's disobedient and therefore is not even indwelled by the Holy Spirit in the first place. Let's look at verse 6 of Genesis 7. Now Noah was 600 years old when the flood of water came upon the earth. Then Noah and his sons and his wife and his sons' wives with him entered the ark because of the flood, water of the flood, of clean animals and animals that are not clean and birds and everything that creeps in the ground. There went into the ark to Noah by twos, male and female, as God had commanded Noah. And it came about after the seven days that the water of the flood came upon the earth. In the 600th year of Noah's life, in the second month, on the 17th day of the month, on the same day, all the fountains of the great deep burst open, and the floodgates of the sky were opened, and the rain fell upon the earth for 40 days and 40 nights. Pardon the pun, but the 600th year of Noah's life was truly a watershed in history. That year marked the end of an era in human history, the end of the antediluvian world. It also marked the beginning of a new era in human history, the post-diluvian world. And that's the one, of course, in which we live today. Some people today call this the post-Christian world. <laughs> I hope not. In the seventh verse... It is again confirmed to us that only eight persons entered the ark because of the flood. You know, after a while, you begin to get the feeling that God's trying to tell us something. Only Noah and his family went to the ark. Only Noah and the family went to the ark. Oh, I mean, how many times do we have to be told? Until it sinks in. Now, others were probably in the ark from time to time. 
Others were helping him build the ark. You know, they're in there pounding in pegs and caulking the seams or whatever they were doing, whatever the crew was doing. Uh, they were in the ark. There were others certainly who had been in the ark gawking around and looking at what, what crazy Noah had built. Wow, look at this thing. <laughs> Too bad it has no meaning. Sort of like the Winchester house, you know. As long as you add another room, the, the lady will be free from the curse. So more rooms and more rooms and stairs which go nowhere. I, I'm sure many people viewed Noah the same way people viewed that lady. Nuts. But when the ark was about ready to serve the purpose for which God ordered it to be made, the only people who heeded God's word were Noah, his wife, his three sons, and three daughters-in-law. That was it. No gawkers, no workers, nobody who, who was ready to, quote, hedge their bets. Well, I'll get on the ark just in case. Never know. Sometimes these crazy idiots are right. I, people, I believe, have been saved by reading the sign on the sandwich board of some guy downtown who says, you know, the judgment is about here, you're going to go to hell. Now, it's pretty blatant, but I think people have been changed by that because God can use those words to really strike home when that heart is prepared and when God is ready. But no, not a one who is willing to stand there with one foot in the ramp and the other foot in the ground, you know, just in case. Strange. Particularly is it strange when the animals began to come. Now, I don't think we really get a picture of what this must have been like. We're told in verse 9 that the animals went in the ark to Noah. He and his sons were out there yelling and screaming and, you know, whipping lariats and, and getting the dogs to, to drive all these animals in the ark. He says they went in to Noah in pairs. <laughs> now, I don't know how many of us have studied uh, biology very much, but, you know, most of the animal world doesn't run around in, in pairs like we do. Some animals do pair up for life, but most animals don't. You know, the, the lion has his harem, and uh, so many animals, they aren't even sure who their husband or their wife is. They don't think in those terms, obviously. Uh, and so for these animals to be, you know, here's Mr. Elephant and Mrs. Elephant and Mr. Giraffe and Mrs. Giraffe and Mrs. Shrew and Mr. Shrew and, you know, <laughs> parading up this ramp in pairs, Undriven, drawn, drawn by the miraculous hand of God. This could be nothing but a miracle. If the people of Noah's day were watching this, they couldn't have said, oh, I saw that yesterday. <laughs> you know, It's just Ringling Brothers all over again. No, no, they, they couldn't have said that. I mean, birds flying in in pairs. How many times do you see that? Oh, doves, yeah, you see the doves, you know, Mr. Dove and Mrs. Dove. But, but other birds... Do you see them flying around? I mean, sparrows? I mean, do you even know? <laughs> so many different kinds of sparrows. Sometimes we mis mistake the male pharaoh, sparrow and the female sparrow for different species, even. They look enough different sometimes. This is a very extraordinary thing. Not your everyday event. For seven days, I believe, this thing took, took place. And that's why God said, you know, seven, seven days and it's all going to happen, so you better get ready, and the animals are coming. And for seven days, these animals paraded into the ark. 
up the ramp by pairs, entering the ark. What a spectacle this must have been. I think Noah and the, and the boys and the gals were inside pretty busy getting them into the right stalls and kind of making sure they were all settled in. They couldn't be busy out there herding them as these animals came up the ramp. How could the people who lived in the area have watched this miraculous phenomenon without beginning to wonder whether crazy Noah didn't have something, really, have some knowledge that they didn't have? I'm, I'm sure there were animals parading up the ramp these people never even seen before. But you know what this illustrates? It simply illustrates how blind is the eye and how hard is the heart that has heard the word of God over and over again and deliberately rejected it time after time. God said, my spirit will not always strive with men in the beginning of the sixth chapter. And you can see that the spirit of God has ceased to strive. And nobody's eyes were opened and nobody's heart was softened. Even though they saw a miracle, even though they saw something that nobody has ever seen since or nobody has ever se had ever seen before, they were unchanged, unmoved. You know, it's speculation, but I could imagine the whole crowd, city came out there to watch this. <laughs> this, this strange phenomenon. And yet all they did was probably joke about it. Remember the people who stood on the walls of Jericho as the children of Israel marched around? Those idiots out there marching around the wall and going home. They think it's just by marching around the wall we're going to surrender? No way. Well, on the seventh day, they found out something different, didn't they? So it would be on this seventh day. Calamity would strike, and they were totally unprepared. Well, we'll pick up there two weeks from today.